Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Seth Brumby, Deputy Editor of DebtWire Municipals. I'm joined today by Mary Ellen Tai, the Assistant Editor, and Greg Clark, the Head of Research. Paul Graves is out today. So we, just the three of us, will be taking care of the week's news. Up first will be, let's start with Illinois, just because that's happy news, I guess. Uh, Mary Ellen, tell us what happened with Illinois this week. Thanks, Seth. Illinois priced the second part of a $6 billion bond plan. This week was $4.5 billion. It was intended to help the state pay off some of a nearly $16 billion bill backlog. So obviously that's just a start. Um, interestingly enough, these bonds priced 100 basis points tighter than the bonds for Illinois had been trading over the summer, but we've seen a lot of sort of good economic indicators for Illinois since this summer. We've seen them pass a budget. We're seeing some better news coming out of Chicago as they're working to sort of get their house in order too. So yeah, that's the Illinois news. Yeah, there's a point in time when passing budgets was supposed to be boring, and yet now it's seen as not only news, but good news too. Yeah, they got some really great rating agency reviews when they did that, you know. Well, we'll see um, how the market, I mean, the market certainly absorbed it all, and I'm pleased to see that Illinois is at least trying to get its act together. Other states are too, in Connecticut. Greg, tell us uh, what happened in Connecticut this week. Connecticut passed the House and the uh, Senate passed the budget with veto-proof majorities. The House 126 to 23 and the Senate 33 to 3, uh, well in excess of what they need to override any potential veto by the governor. We don't, I'm not saying he's going to veto it. He might, he might not. He, whatever he does, he has to do by Wednesday or the uh, budget will go into law without his signature, the old pocket veto idea. There's no new major tax. There's a cigarette tax. Uh, there's a tax on ride sharing. And apparently they are raiding some internal funds. The governor says that the budget may not be balanced, that it may be out of balance by uh, a billion dollars. So that would appear to be, if he's right about that, uh, well, regardless of whether he's right about that, that could be a reason for a potential veto by the governor. Uh, this also affected Hartford. There's $40 million in the state budget for Hartford, which prompted the mayor of Hartford, Luke Bronin, to step away a bit from the bankruptcy cliff. He's still talking about a restructuring, but he's he's pulled back on the idea of bankruptcy. So we'll have to see what's going to happen there. We've been watching Hartford because they have a big payment due the end of this month. So... Yeah, and apparently they plan to make that payment. So they'll avoid a default this time around. That was really supposed to be the trigger. That said, if I, if I recall correctly with Hartford, their big issue was actually debt service payments, unlike what you've seen a lot of other municipalities, which are normally pointing the finger at their cost of labor and human capital. But it seems like for them it was debt, and that's pretty much that's easier to tackle, I guess. There's yeah. more of a framework for that. In Pennsylvania... And Pennsylvania still seems to kind of muddle along, isn't it? Yeah, they, they also passed, uh, they sent a revenue package to the governor. You may recall that there was an expenditure agreement back in June, I guess, but there is no matching revenue package, which doesn't leave you with a balanced budget, it just leaves you with a spending plan. What the legislature is proposing 
is an expansion of gambling. I learned a new term today, iGaming, and uh, found out that it refers to just online gaming. Uh, Welcome those, to 1995. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm, use, I'm violating one of my rules. I try not to use the word gaming because I think it's a euphemism. I always try to say gambling. This is online gambling. Uh, if you're, New Jersey has done this for a while. If, if you're in New Jersey, you can, I like geographically in New Jersey, you can gamble online. Pennsylvania is proposing that they be allowed to do the, the same thing. One of the governor's big ideas was a tax on natural gas extraction, in other words, a severance tax, but that's not part of what the legislature is sending to him. Um, the governor has 10 days to sign, and uh, he said that he is going to, this is not a direct quote, but he's going to take his time looking at, at, this, at the revenue plan. Okay. So uh, earlier this week, we actually had a webinar on Puerto Rico, and it was mainly focused on the recovery efforts following Hurricane Maria and how it intersects with the ongoing restructuring. Uh, this week, there was two really important pieces of news. Uh, one was good news in the sense that the federal government appropriated additional disaster relief money. And it's interesting, the, the press in Puerto Rico is very much under the impression that $4.9 billion of that in the form of loans will go to the island specifically. And another $1.2 billion in uh, SNAP assistance will also go to the island. But I think that there's a, a more misunderstanding the further away you get from it and whether or not that's spread out across the three different disaster zones from the hurricane season this fall, which includes, which stretches from Texas to Florida and then down to the Caribbean. So we're still getting some clarity on that. But whatever it is, there'll be some more money coming into Puerto Rico's coffers. There was some other news, less good, which was uh, Noel Zamot's. Well, I, I have no opinion of Noel Zamot. He is the, uh, the revitalization officer appointed back in July, meant to help with privatization, but his role has changed. Mary Ellen, walk us through that. I think when you're saying less good, you mean this sort of ruins the... There's been an image of solidarity and unity in Puerto Rico since the hurricane, and this is the first issue, I think, where we've really seen the government and the oversight board going back at each other. The Oversight Board is really responsible for Puerto Rico's finances, and they appointed Zaymont to be the chief restructuring officer? Chief. Yeah, for PREPA, it's the chief transformative officer. It's essentially a CEO that's meant to coordinate federal efforts and local efforts, and then for the short term in the disaster relief, but then somehow stitch that together with the fiscal economic growth plan that was filed in May for PREPA. Yeah, and the governor sees this as a very direct attack on Puerto Rico's sovereignty. The letters that he sent are certainly the strongest I've read regarding any action by the oversight in terms of we will jealously defend our right to be independent. It's certainly causing a rift there. Yeah, in some ways I see it as an extension of an earlier dispute prior to Hurricane Maria between the oversight board and Governor Rosayo where the Oversight Board essentially told the governor that he's supposed to furlough a lot of public employees in order to meet the fiscal economic growth plan that the uh, Oversight Board had passed for the Commonwealth. And Governor Rosea's response to that was, you know, you don't tell me what to do. I just have to make sure I comply with your numbers. And litigation began. It was before Judge Swain in the, uh, 
in the Puerto Rico District Court. But after Hurricane Maria, and what I felt was kind of a show of cooperation and solidarity, the Oversight Board withdrew it. But now we see a new adversary proceeding, or a new motion, rather, in the PREPA Title III restructuring saying from the Oversight Board, Your Honor, you know, we want to take control of the situation. Yeah, definitely, definitely ruining that image of solidarity. In other Puerto Rico news, there was, as we all know, a lot of forced selling since Hurricane Maria, uh, general obligation bonds, which are the benchmark security, hit an all-time low in the 20s uh, over the past, I would say, five to 10 trading sessions. And as a result, there's been some churn in the bondholder groups. Uh, we've seen two members of the COFINA group leave. That was Varde and Merced. These are so-called crossover buyers, hedge funds, vulture funds, whatever you want to call it. As the larger, in, in context of the Puerto Rico capital structure, their holdings were not that significant. But considering that they are part of an ad hoc group that was litigious to say the least, it's certainly news and noteworthy. Yeah, whenever the ad hoc groups grow or shrink, their relative power grows or shrinks. So if people leave one of them, it means they have less clout. So no matter how much they sue, how much noise they make, really they have fewer people at the table. Gotcha. Uh, but just want to remind everybody that their holdings were maybe in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which does sound a lot, but, uh, like a lot, but this, was, this, this capital structure is $120 billion large. So just want to put that in the proper context. In other primary market news, it looks like we have uh, – was this a health care deal or was this a higher education deal? Higher, higher ed, Seth. It's Immaculata College University about 20 miles west of Philadelphia. As, as the name implies, it's a uh, Catholic school run by an order of nuns. And it's indicative of, of some of the problems that a lot of colleges and universities are having now, the small ones anyway. Their undergraduate headcount in the last five years dropped from 1155 to 900. Graduate headcount dropped and non-traditional headcounts dropped. The total uh, headcount is down by 37%. And the if you convert that to full-time equivalent enrollment, it's down by 19%. In response, they've cut some uh, some staff. The student-teacher ratio, therefore, went a little bit less, uh, less favorable. Their acceptance rate is up very slightly, and the matriculation rate, which is the number of students who decide to attend, divided by the number of students who have been admitted, has gone down a little bit. Luckily for the school, the uh, the SATs are steady, so it so it does indicate that they're they're holding the line on the on the quality of the student body. Their uh, revenues went down as well. Their tuition revenues, obviously, they would have to go down as as the um, number of students went down. So they're they're facing a struggle, and you you do see schools like this every once in a while. And uh, obviously, you always hope that a, a four-year college university is going to be able to stay open. This has a profile of one. Obviously, it's having problems now. And uh, with a little bit of luck, they'll get a handle on the problems and come out of this. But it's, it's one of those things that you see in the higher ed sector. And wrapping up this week's news, we're going to just go over very quickly the Texas Association of Public Schools Property and Liability Fund which I'll refer to as TAPS. It filed for Chapter 9 protection 
actually last week on the 18th in Texas. What's interesting about this is that it's a direct result of actually extreme weather events. They don't associate their filing with the effects of Hurricane Harvey specifically, so much as they do over the past couple of years of, let's just call them, really heavy storms that produced hail, flooding, whatever the case might be. And essentially what they do is they reimburse schools for damage that they sustain during these events. TAPS has been around since 2001 uh, and provides property and casualty insurance for roughly 175 school districts and community colleges, and it is now bankrupt. So don't let it fool you. Extreme weather events do have a municipal impact. That'll be all for this week, folks. We'll see you next week.